I've almost started putting that title onto my my books. It's about a, a lifelong learner who cares. And something that my mother taught me. She passed away two years ago when she was ninety-seven, uh, and she had said that uh, uh, as she was, you know, to her nineties already, that uh, she wasn't trying to add more years to her life. Enough years had been given to her already in her life. She wanted to add life to her years, and she said that I live when I learn. And if I stop being curious about what's happening around me and why it's happening, and curious about my own thoughts also, why they come, I've stopped learning. And therefore, she said, I've stopped living, and I want to live, and therefore, I want to learn. I want to be curious about why. Why is it so? Hey all, happy new year! Wishing you and your near ones a wonderful 2021. Couldn't have asked for a better guest than Arun kicking off 2021. Arun Maira is one of those rare people who had held leadership positions in the private sector, not-for-profit, as well as public sector, bringing in a unique perspective on how everything can coexist to foster the growth of society and country. He's held multiple leadership roles at the Tatas, board member at Tata Motors, stints at Altered Little, head of BCG India, member of Planning Commission, and currently chairman of Helpage International. At the heart of everything, he's a thought leader and an inspiration. Arun, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me, Srikant. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's a pleasure to hear you out. With all five decades of uh, experience in this uh, varied. Sectors, varied fields, from corporate to government to NFP, and now you are a much uh, acclaimed author. How have you made the leap in each of these? Uh, what has been your lessons in uh, these transitions, Arunji? Mm-hmm. Srikant, thank you um, for asking me about uh, the turning points in my life. And as you pointed out, I've had the bounty given to me, the gift given to me by life of doing many different things and in different countries also. But I didn't necessarily choose to make changes every time. The changes came about by some basic direction that I had in my life, which then intersected with some changes in circumstances around me, and then I took another turn in my life. But there seems to have been a thread through all of it, which was a, a desire to learn about myself, about who am I, and What uh, am I seeking for in my life, as well as a great desire to understand things around me, how people around me think and they work, how the systems around me uh, work. Whereas in the government sector, you join to serve the country and the people. So I wasn't that. So why would I then end up in Tatars, which is a business organization? It's um, an interview with the Tatars, where they. while recognizing that i wanted to join the government i explained that tatars were also building the country and that they've been doing it a long time the jamshedji tatars days when he created a steel plant in india when the british would not allow indians to produce anything of any you know great depth and value technology depth and value because uh, they took raw materials from india and took them to britain and converted those raw materials into things that this all back to us like took our cotton and converted to cloth and and then we bought the cloth from england so we had produced the cotton 
ourselves here in, in India. So the Tata directors told me that um, Mahatma Gandhi had said that while he was fighting for India's political freedom, Jamshedji Tata had been fighting for India's industrial freedom, economic freedom. Mm-hmm. And that impressed me that, you know, the economy is also part of our lives. And to build uh, industries which will employ people and enable people to learn, to do things which they don't know yet. I mean, industrialization is a process of people learning to do more complex things than uh, they know when they join an industry. And countries grow into industries when the countries, people in the countries and enterprises in the countries start doing more complicated things. Like, you know, producing a truck or a, or a bus or a car is more difficult than stitching a garment. Yeah. So the garment industry is a good industry, it employs people, but it's not as complicated as uh, producing a whole truck or a whole car. And they said Tata's has been a produced steel, now we are into uh, producing trucks and buses in India. So we are creating a new India, a more self-reliant India, an India in which lots of young people will be employed who will grow their own skills, yes, and become more self-confident and and earn more thereby. So this was an attractive proposition to me for my desire to serve the country. So that's how I ended up in Tata's. I spent 25 years there, and I've written a book recently recollecting what I learned in Tata's those 25 years called The Learning Factory, and we can talk about what I learned in those days. But from Tata's then I moved quite unexpectedly to the United States. Unexpectedly means that... uh, it was not a plan of my life. My plan of my life was to be in India and to continue to build uh, myself mm-hmm. in industry and with Tata's and to help Tata's to keep building more industries. But I ended up out of India altogether in the United States because of some family circumstances. I had to go there temporarily. It took a little longer when I got there. And so there I got chances to learn about things I couldn't have learned about in India because it was another country and it was it really interested me. It made me understand that the world is complex, that the world is composed of people with ideas, that there are institutions that uh, people build with their ideas, and that's how the institutions of government in the U.S. were quite different to the ones I'd experienced in India. The way industry ran in the U.S. was different to the way I experienced industries in India, and the way families you know, were together in the U.S. was quite different to with families over here. So institutions are different and they're created by people's behaviors, their ideas and their norms. So I became curious about, you know, people and institutions and got very engaged in this whole field called organization learning. So it's not just about an individual, how individuals learn and then, you know, teaching people, individuals, but how do organizations and institutions collectively learn to do things which they are not able to do beforehand, which I thought was very useful for me if I came back to India. Because when India was about building organizations with new capabilities, so how organizations learn and build better capabilities was really my quest. And then I came back to India when uh, I was able to to then apply what I had learned about how institutions learn, industries learn, and maybe how countries learn back into India, but continue my learning about these matters when I came back in the, the year 2000. So that's principally then within India, of course, I was invited fortunately by the Prime Minister in 2009 to join the Planning Commission, where um, I got a great opportunity to see my own country 
all sides of it, because in the planning commission, one sits beside the prime minister and has the breadth of the country around one, below one. It's like being in a helicopter and seeing the whole scene. All the different functions in the planning commission of industry, of health, of education, infrastructure, the financial sector, it's all there. And a lot of NGOs would come and represent their views of what is necessary to be done in the country. So one got to listen to many more people than I was able to listen to when I was just working in industry before. And so, you know, it was lovely to be listening and learning and listening and learning up in the planning commission. And then I left the planning commission when the government changed. We had to all, we resigned with the prime minister, appointed with the prime minister. And then I joined the civil services, not civil society sector, excuse me, the NGO sector mostly. And I've been learning with them uh, around the world. So that's where the stint with HelpAge? Yes, and HelpAge, uh, I decided after the planning commission, I didn't want to do any full-time work uh, with a position in an organization. Because that way, then one is you know more in the doing mode, and one is less in the ability to listen and reflect. Uh, in the doing mode, one also finds it harder to be able to criticize oneself or be criticized because you have to appear in charge. So if you don't take such a position, you can take feedback about what you've learned and whether you've learned well and also learn more uh, easily. But Helpage came to me and said to me that, uh, look, they are looking for a new chairperson. And I made the excuse to them, which I had, that, you know, I decided that after I was 65, I would not take any role, uh, official position anywhere. I had taken the one with the planning commission because it was serving the nation. And who can refuse an invitation from the prime minister to say, will you serve the nation the way Dr. Manmohan Singh put it to me? I mean, in college, I'd always wanted to do that. So 50 years later in life, if the prime minister says, come serve the nation, I said, well, I couldn't have joined the IAS then. I didn't join the IAS. <laughs> Thank you, sir. So I came there. But that was over in five years. It's a term job. It was finished. And I said, well, I'm not going to take any position after 65. So my excuse was that, you know, I've retired from doing any work which requires me to be in charge of anything. And they said to me, HelpAge International, look, we are about older people. We are helping the world to realize that the older people are not a burden. The older people are contributors and they should be valued and respected. And so you can't retire from that job. So mm-hmm. on our organization, you have to make an exception. Until you're 90 or whenever, you can be the chairperson of Helpage International, considering what our message is. So that's how, that's the one thing that I have an official role in, uh, which is chairperson of Helpage International. And it doesn't take, you know, it's not a full-time job. I don't do something every day there. It's not a 24 by 7 engagement. But it engages a lot of me in my thinking and my doing. And it is so central for me because as I'm working with other NGOs and civil society organizations, I'm learning the challenges of uh, building a civil society organization which is doing good for people and not making any money or returns for itself. So it's been great learning. I'm continuing with it. Super. I think we cannot uh, encapsulate the 50 years plus of learning in uh, this episode. We would need to definitely run uh, lots of episodes. Uh, talking about learning, you also kind of uh, have taken another hat of being an author. You have uh, authored close to about nine books, the latest being The Learning Factory. Congratulations on your new book. 
tell us a bit more about the learning factory what made you to write it and the essence of uh, this particular book yeah well i was uh, in the planning commission looking after the job of uh, building industries in india which is dr manmohan singh invited me for that because i said to him when he called me i was surprised because i have never been in government i am not an economist so i did say sir that i hope you haven't made a mistake i'm arun maira and my name is spelled m e i r a perhaps your your office was wanting you to i mean wanting someone else to come here but it's me he said no i know you you worked in tatas and i followed and we need to do that now we need to build industries in india which will produce things for us which we are not able to produce for ourselves yet for our atmanirbhar let me say self reliance it wasn't his term it's the present government is using so you can see this challenge of india building itself becoming more confident of itself and more self reliant it is been as an ongoing journey since nehru's time uh, into today he called me for that and said you you have an experience in this and we need to uh, have you to uh, guide the development of industry in the country hmm? to create more jobs to create more learning organizations in which young people will join will serve will earn and will learn and increase their own competencies and the competencies of the institutions in which in which they work so he invited me for that so i learned a lot about my country then about how industries were being shaped and why they were not growing as well as we needed them to grow and i began to see that there were ideas that had come into the country uh, in the 1990s and in the 2000 early from economics about um, how you know industries are parts of markets and people human beings also are parts of labor markets so this whole notion about markets in which there are prices for things and you buy and sell things and trade in things that metaphor that whole uh, paradigm uh, had begun to infect our country that india had joined global markets and uh, we must open up markets in the country so these are economist ideas and dr manmohan singh of course one of the best economists so he said to me we don't want another economist <laughs> because we have many economists we want to get outside the paradigm of thinking that economists could solve the problem and grow industries so um apply yourself so i looking through my lens of our people in the country learning our institutions in the country learning growing faster began to see that uh, china for example which is the country that we were beginning to envy and are still envy greatly in terms of what it has achieved in the same 30 years since its liberalization than we have in during the time i mean it's grown its manufacturing sector about 10 times ours it was in 1990 china had a similar size manufacturing sector as we had last 10 times larger in 1990 china used to produce less machine tools and capital goods which are the mother industries you know they produce the tools with which then you can produce parts and so on we had a comparable to china uh, and better quality perhaps for example the trucks and buses we produced in india then and we were exporting them china wasn't able to do that and the machine tools we produced in the country including in my company tatas were better than the chinese ones that were available at the time but today the chinese machine tools and capital goods industry is about 50 times our size so when you come to you know importing like uh, in the uh, 
telecom industry, which, uh, you know, is very much in the air right now. We talk of UI and others. I mean, they're producing complex gear. Yeah, so we may have the BPO offices in India, right? And we will be producing things and on social media, maybe new platforms and applications. But the back end of telecommunications and the whole internet is being run on these very complicated hardware equipments. Yeah. And they are being produced in China to the world class to the extent that the US has to prevent their export out of China uh, to go elsewhere. So, how did this happen? That in these 30 years, China learned much faster than we had learned. We have the same level of knowledge about industry in the 1989-90. And they were now so many rungs ahead of us in the depth of the industry and the scale of their industry. So looking at the uh, developments around us, the ideas around us, and the policies around us in India, through the lens of do they stimulate rapid learning or not? But as people pointed out to us uh, from the World Bank, who are you know, always available to guide uh, people in all governments and to us also, pointed out to us that China has been a faster learner than India. So we can keep looking for, oh, China opened up a land uh, near the seashores so that people could put up big factories. That is what is visible. You know? So we say, oh, gave big pieces of land to foreign investors. Let's also open up big pieces of land on our shoreline and give it to foreign investors. Yes, But that is a very small part of the deeper change that has happened in China with which it's built industries far away from those shore places also, and not just the garment industries and assembling of cell phone industries, which we keep saying were the large factories, is, as I said, the depth of the industries of China producing power generation equipment, producing telecommunication back-end equipment, electronics hardware, not merely software. These changes, how did this happen? So looking at ourselves, we found, I found that one was a, a, we're looking, barking up the wrong tree, as they say. If you bark up the tree of, you know, free trade and economics, which is based on markets and trade within markets, you will miss the insights that you would get if you looked at the systems around, whether they are countries or their companies, through the lens of are they learning? Are they learning fast? Are they learning faster than any competition? Because ultimately, at the end of the day, everyone is learning somehow. Some are learning faster, some are learning slower. And those who learn faster catch up with those who are ahead of them. And then if they keep learning faster, they'll stay ahead of them. So the only, like China, it was behind other countries in 1990, as we were too. But they have caught ahead and gone ahead of other countries so much faster. Before that, there was Japan, which after the war, was producing cheap stuff, as people said, Japanese stuff. You may not remember it because you're younger. You used to buy Japanese stuff, but say, what jata hai, it's sasta stuff. Like the reputation even Chinese goods had in the 1990s. So Japanese was like that in the 1960s. But then by the 1980s, giant Japanese cars, Japanese white goods, yeah, they were the world's benchmarks. And the US and the Germans had to compete against the quality of Japan. So they had learned also as a whole society. And many industries learned. The car industry learned, the white goods industry learned, the steel industry learned. Yeah, the trains are beautiful, always on time, clean. Yeah, so the government systems were learning also in Japan very fast. 
And the China later, I'm saying, is the same story as we go on. So through this lens of learning, one begins to see what are the constraints on learning that the system imposes and that you impose on yourself also. So my book, The Learning Factory, is goes back, and this is the question you asked, is that what did I reflect when I was in the Planning Commission? Now, why did I write the book, though? I wrote the book mm -hmm. because I was asked by a friend, um, Tarun Das, who was a chief mentor of CII, and built up the Confederation of Indian Industry for 40 years, I think. So he knew the story of India's industrialization, as did I. I mean, he was in the association, the leader. I was in an industry, a manager and a leader. So he asked me on a trip to Singapore earlier this year only, February. He said, um, where are you going? I said, Singapore. So was he. So we're talking about how Singapore has developed so fast. You know, it's one of the world's most important countries. And it was in the 1960s when I joined Tata's. Singapore had nothing. There were marshes, right? Some fields, a lot of shops, but, you know, bazaars and uh, some ports that ships used to come into because of its location. But look what Singapore is today. So I shared with him my stories and Tata's which were connected with the development of Singapore in the 1960s. Yes. As a prime minister of Singapore, Lee Kuan Yew asked GRD Tata, could Tata's help guide the building of industries within Singapore? Now imagine this story. There is Singapore today, which is being turned to by India also. Let's learn from you hmm? because you are one of the most developed economies in the world. Hmm? But in 1960, they were learning from us. So what happened to us? What happened to us is the question. We, mm. if I would say, stopped building ourselves. We stopped building Stop ourselves. Learning. We started Stop learning. We stopped learning. Or we were learning. We always learned. But we weren't learning as fast as the Chinese were learning, like I pointed out, and many others. Very interesting. Very uh, great perspective there. And I've had the opportunity to go through the book. So there are some fundamental and wonderful anecdotes there. So for all the listeners out there, you'll have the link for the book in the show notes. But one question, uh, Arunji, that I have by virtue of reading the book is you're also responsible for creating Infosys of what it is today. So can you shed some light on that? I am not responsible for Infosys and neither is Tata's responsible for Infosys. But there is a story and let me share that story, right? It's a great Sudha Murthy and Narayan Murthy who say that Tata's have helped to create Infosys. Of course, they say help to, they don't say created because it's Narayan Murthy and his police greatness that has created Infosys. So let's not take it away from them. But the story is that um, Tata's, we were growing our industries, uh, as we said, learning factory, which was in Pune, which is Sumant Bhagavatari. He was at the time vice chairman of the Tata Group uh, and vice chairman of the Tata Engineering and Locomotive Company, which is what Tata Motors used to be called, was decided that we needed to build a factory in India in which we would produce trucks and buses designed by Indians because in Jamshedpur, we had learned how to produce trucks and buses designed by Mercedes-Benz of Germany. And they were great teachers and we learned to produce the world's best types of buses and the trucks. So now we're going to produce a factory built by Indians to produce things designed by Indians and then So in that, we had to get Indians to uh, learn to do things which they never done before. Yes, they never designed a truck or a bus. We never designed the machines that go into a truck or a bus. We hadn't even designed the factory in Jamshedpur. The Germans helped us design the factory. But we'd have to do all these things ourselves. 
Now, who's going to do these things? Indians, but which Indians? Indians available around us had never done any of these things. So we'd have to all learn together to do something we'd never done before. And so it was in this thing that we had to find ambitious Indians, young Indians who were, you know, starting life. It's like going back. I wanted to build India when I left college. So, I mean, this time is again, people with the same spirit of building India, building new industries in India, going to the IITs. And we went to all the IITs, which fortunately were available to the country because of, I would say, Jawaharlal Nehru's farsightedness that unless you build the skills and knowledge of people, you cannot build anything with any depth thereafter. So his uh, or the government of India's contributions to the growth of India since then have been very much in the institutions of learning, like the IITs particularly, which have helped build Infosys also, uh, as you know. But anyway, we were in Telco uh, looking for the best Indians with an engineering background so we could build a big Indian-built industry to build trucks and buses. We were finding mostly men in the IITs, obviously. There used to be hardly any women in the IITs. So the men were flying and they were being selected. And we were building uh, you know, systems for them to learn on the job while they were building things they never done before in Pune. And um, our advertisements didn't specifically say, or we thought they didn't specifically exclude women, because anyway, there weren't any women to hire, it seemed. A woman applied to the ad. And she was noticed then that she was very bright, her marks were very high, and that she should be considered. But then the people noticed that she was a woman. And so they said to her that we're very sorry, we cannot consider women hmm, mm -hmm. uh, for jobs here because it's on the factory floor and it means working with men and workers and, you know, it's hard work and so on. So um, we cannot. But if you, since you're very good, we could offer you a job in an office. Yeah, and engineer, we do need people in design offices and we need people yeah, in offices, we could do that. She insisted, no, 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 I have learned to do manufacturing work and I want to be trained and I want to work on, on the factory floor. So then it was explained to her that, uh, well, it's a matter of, no, it wasn't then explained to her. That was just said that we are sorry, you know, we can't take you if you want to work only on the factory floor mm -hmm. in manufacturing. So she dropped a letter to Jiyaji Tata. And he had this system that uh, anybody in the country, uh, mainly it was for Tata people, that if you felt there was something that was not going right in your company, you could write, and after you appealed and discussed with your own superiors, you could write to him and say, you know, sir, I would like you to consider this. Uh, but she, as an outsider, wrote to him and said that, uh, you know, how come when you say that you want to get the best Indians to build this telco thing here, and I'm being refused. What's wrong with me? I mean, I've done so well and stuff. The only thing wrong with me seems to be I'm a woman. Hmm? Mm -hmm. Jyadi was quite intrigued. And so he told uh, Suman Margaonka and he called me since I was in charge of uh, the human resource building in, in uh, Telco. That, uh, Myra, why are you refusing this woman? <clears throat> so I repeated our logic that we want her, but we can't give her the jobs that we really have. All our jobs are mostly to do with the manufacturing jobs on the floor. Because, you know, we can't have toilets and safety for women. So he said to me, he said, uh, look, what does it cost you to build a few more toilets? And what is the talent that you're missing? This may be a very rare person. And they're hard to find, you know, Myra. So why don't you build a few toilets if you have to <laughs> and allow women to join? So we changed our policies. We enabled women to join. And she did join. 
And as Narayan Murthy said that, you know, he was starting Infosys. He had no money for his venture. So Sudha had to be doing earning in the family so she could support him while he was starting his venture. So that's how Narayan Murthy says and Sudha says that GRD helped him to start Infosys, right? So please, I'm not taking any credit away from Narayan Murthy or from Sudha. Like, Thanks so much for sharing that, Arunji. I think this itself is a great uh, story of the leadership of uh, JRD and the tenacity of uh, Sudhamurthy. Thanks for that. So, Shaggy, uh, you have been a big proponent of, amongst many things, nation building, organization building, all of those things, is also about the purpose of life. So, you have spoken on many occasions about the purpose of life. Maybe I will put you in a spot and ask you about this. How do you define purpose of life and how can one find it? You know, actually, my granddaughter, she's now nine, but when she was six or seven, she asked her mother one day, mother was driving her in a car, uh, and this little girl sitting behind her in the seat in the back said, uh, Mom, are we real or are we a story? Hmm? So asking about herself and about her mother, are we real or are we a story? And it makes you think, that we are all part of some large story. We are all characters in some large story. right? How did we become characters in the stories? Who made us characters in the story? Okay, and someone gave us birth and so we appeared in some physical form as characters on the stage. But what is the role that we are supposed to play in this play? There is a big drama going on. So I am being uh, born onto the stage. I'm real. Am I, I can pinch myself and say, I feel it. But what is my role in this larger system around myself? And changing from a play to the system. Hmm? Yeah, as they do say about the world, hai, but it's, it's, it's a game that God plays, right? So Krishna's Leela, hmm? it's, it's there. So what is my purpose in this game? Now, one can take a view that my purpose really is survival. Right, which is what many people define that it's uh, you know it's, uh, evolution is a process of the fittest survive. So I must grab as much as I can food for myself, you know things for myself, space for my own house, and uh, if I do that very well, I fulfilled my purpose in the bigger game. And then one says, but okay, all animals are doing that instinctively. They are also you know part of the fight for their food or they go foraging for their food. So am I just that? Am I just playing that animal-like role as I live? Or is there another different and larger role that I could be playing? And as human beings, we ask ourselves this question, which means we are perhaps, like my granddaughter asking, asking questions which I don't know whether animals ask themselves this question. Am I part of some larger story? He's not. He's going to just jump out and say, I'm hungry now, no, let's get a deer and, you know, and live and live well. Their muscles get trained as they do it. And so they, they improve. But this question about what is the purpose of my existence, why did I come about, is something that human beings feel. So I ask myself this question and I say it cannot be just making something for myself, hmm? grabbing and being the most efficient or effective at making more for myself, okay, getting more for myself. So we do find in uh, business and otherwise that people who make a lot of money for themselves, we say, are, you know, very competent people and people to be admired. Hmm? But what is it they have achieved? 
they have made a lot for themselves. What impact have they had on the world around them? Did by their existence they improve the world around them, or did they only make more for themselves? Hmm? And so this question about by my existence is the world improved or not? Have I purposefully during my existence helped the world to become better for others, not just for myself? So I find that this is the question that has been first lurking at the back of my mind as I've been going through life: is how can I help to make the world better for others? Yeah, for which I have to learn and become more effective and successful myself. But the purpose is not my own success. The purpose is making the world better for others, for everyone, to go down that path. And very profound, and it's for the larger good than for oneself. With that in mind, again drawing on uh, your experience, what would be some of those tips that you would recommend share that people listening to this talk? can take and say that okay this is something i can consider doing so that i can also build purpose around my life yes you have to ask yourself the question what do you care about most deeply what do you care about most deeply and when you ask yourself this question it could be that the answer that comes at what i care about most deeply is to be the most famous person to be the greatest poet and then ask yourself this question by becoming the greatest poet what need of myself and what need of society will I have satisfied and if it turns out that your answer is only about well if i become the greatest poet then i'll have more power i'll have more wealth i'll have more admiration you're going down that selfish path again hmm? but it's okay I mean, we have to evolve then ask yourself then i push myself to say who else would be benefited by my becoming a great poet and therefore i start turning to asking the benefit of my existence and for my great talent for others so i like to keep asking myself quite often because i do find i will slip very easily and i do to say i'm doing something like talking to you shikant on this podcast and trying to do my best but if this podcast is good then shikant will share it to lots of people and then lots of people will say look arunji is a great guy so i'm getting my own satisfaction about how great i am so you remember what the bhagavad gita said krishna said i mean to uh, to uh, arjuna you have a right to the work and not to the fruits thereof i don't have a right to the fruits the world has a right to the fruits of my work hmm? my purpose is to produce something for the world and to judge whether i'm good for the world i have to ask the world did i do good for you and the fact that they pay me or do admiration is a not a the right way to judge whether i'm doing good for the world yeah why because i very easily start measuring my success by my own wealth by the number of people who follow me and so on again self referential how big i become i have to slip to say no no at all times even if i have very few followers do they feel that my being with them has helped them in some way was my Beautiful. being good for them beautifully said dhatuji thank you so much again coming back to the point you have been an author of close to about 9 books and there is lot of thought leadership in that if somebody were to come to you and say arunji we would want to write a book on you what do you think the title of that book should be or could be 
you know, I have almost started putting that title onto my my books. It's about a, a lifelong learner who cares, a lifelong learner who cares, uh, and something this my mother taught me. She passed away two years ago when she was uh, ninety-seven, and she had said that uh, uh, as she was, you know, to her nineties already, that. Uh, she wasn't trying to add more years to her life. Enough years had been given to her already in her life. She wanted to add life to her years. And she said that I live when I learn. And if I stop being curious about what's happening around me and why it's happening and curious about my own thoughts also, why they come, I've stopped learning. And therefore, she said, I've stopped living. And I want to live. And therefore, I want to learn. I want to be curious about why. Why is it so? And these why, why questions are the prodding questions for always learning, for always learning. So I, I want to um, share my insights into how I wasn't able to learn but sometimes. Like I said right now, when I start becoming self-referential, about just measuring the outcomes of learning. Did I get enough money? Did I get enough followers? I'm not focusing on the process of learning. Right. Am I learning? It is like the Gita said, then it's the fruits that you're focusing on, but not on the actions. So just keep focusing on my actions of learning and learn from that. Great. I think we have been sharing quite a lot of insights to us. If there is one inspire someone today message for all the listeners, what would that be? Is this these two things. One is uh, see who other than yourself is benefited by your existence in this world. And there I would say that I'm very inspired by Mahatma Gandhi uh, in his expression of Anantodhya, that if you want to think about any policy, as he said, or any action of your own, see, think of the poorest person that you can think of and imagine what benefit your action or your policy will have for that person. So by your existence also are the poorest people benefiting, by your policies also are the poorest people benefiting. Okay. So that judgment, keep asking yourself, what I'm doing, who is benefiting? Certainly it shouldn't be me, but if it's other people like myself who already have a lot and they are benefiting, maybe I'm not stretching myself enough and not fulfilling the deepest human purpose for existence. So the second is Mahatma Gandhi himself, the inspiration that he had. His, own, his book, autobiography, is called uh, The Story of My Experiments with Truth. It is about, he was a lifelong learner. He was always, you know, experimenting with his own ideas and finding, like we say, solutions, policy type solutions and learning from them also. He was a great learner, learning about himself inside and learning about the world outside. So he was in action and learning. So it was not like learning or disappearing onto the top of a hilltop and for, you know, six, seven years doing sannyas and learning about oneself in that thing. It was in life, learning in life. So. Those are the two messages. Keep learning and keep judging your actions by the benefit or the impact that they have on the poorest people around you. Fantastic. Arunji, we had great time, uh, great chatting up with you. Thank you so much for uh, being on Inspire Someone today. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Rikant. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening into today's edition of Inspire Someone Today. It's been a privilege to bring in these conversations. If you like this episode and have any feedback or comments, do mail me at inspiresomewantodaypodcast 
at the rate gmail.com. Inspiring someone is like creating ripples around us. If you like what to listen, feel free to share them and let's create ripples of inspiration. Do not forget to follow me on my Instagram handle at the rate inspire someone today podcast for all the latest updates. This is Srikanth, your host, signing off, and until next time, keep inspiring.